1: Welcome to episode 123 with my guest, Baron Vaughn. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. There's all kinds of stuff you can do there. You can join the forum. You can support the show uh, financially. You can take one of the many surveys that we have, or you can see how other people uh, responded to surveys. So please go, and you can read blogs by me and a ton of guests that have written blogs. Um, what did I want to say? Uh, I think... I think I mentioned this in the last episode but um, I've got an offer to to do a couple of uh, uh, live versions of this show at um, a mental health, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a event in Toronto in the middle of November of, uh, of this year and uh, I'm probably going to do it and if you are, I've created a thread in the forum um called uh, underneath the, the thread um, is a uh, mental illness happy hour event uh, feasible in your area. Then there's a, a Toronto thread, uh, sub-thread underneath that. And there's a poll. So if you are think you would come or possibly come to that Toronto show, it would be on the 15th and 16th of uh, of November. Um, it would be a uh, probably like a group listener recording the night of the 15th and then a live interview with a, a single guest um, and an audience um, in the afternoon of the 16th. Could I have stumbled through that more? I don't think so. Let's get to um, the show. Bef- before we do that, I want to um, read an email that I got from a guy who uh, calls himself David. He writes, Thank you for having Valerie on. Uh, Sadly, the whole topic of adoption seems a little taboo in the United States, and it's nice to hear a story of a mother who decided what was best for her child. I could not stop laughing when you were talking about abortion and said that the only people who have a house, that only people who have a house full of adopted kids and volunteer in an orphanage orphanage might have the right to say something about abortion. Well, my house is full of adopted kids. My wife and I are foster parents and worked in orphanages overseas. While I do not believe abortion is a good thing, I don't think it's my place to push my belief on other people. There are millions of orphans and children in foster care that need families and too few people that stand up and take these children into their homes. Anything that can help people gain empathy for all the people involved in the adoption is greatly appreciated. Thank you for that, David. Um, And then I just wanna read one survey. This is a happy moment filled out by a a person who calls himself Seahawk. And they write, "Um, it was my first semester in college. I lived in a dorm. I didn't have a lot of friends in high school and none of those few attendees and none of those few uh, attended the same university as I did. Bear with me on the surveys. The print is so small. and it's all single-spaced. Sometimes it's, it's hard to uh, read these. Um, continuing. I had been in the dorm for about a month and was starting to build a small group of friends. My roommate was really into 311. It was 1995. One day, we had our door open, and he was playing the song Purpose from their album on his stereo. Another guy we knew happened to be walking by, and he stopped in the doorway and started dancing to the song. Just a goofy, short dance. We all laughed a bit and smiled. I remember feeling so comfortable in that moment and content. I felt as if the strangers I had been cohabitating with were becoming friends. I felt that maybe I could do a goofy dance and not be ostracized. I felt like I belonged.
0: Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head.
1: I'm here with Baron Vaughn, who some of you know as a stand-up comedian. Some of you know him on his uh, USA Network uh, TV show. Give me the name of it again. Fairly Cancelled.
2: Oh, has it been cancelled? Yeah, yeah. No, it's called Fairly Legal, but yeah, we got cancelled. Oh, I'm so sorry. Shit canned, as they say. I'm so sorry. There's no problem. Uh, did you enjoy being on that? I did enjoy it, actually. There's a lot I didn't enjoy, which was being in Vancouver. Even though I love the city of Vancouver, I was incredibly isolated and probably had. the. It's when I realized that I get depressed. I'd never considered it as an option for my life. Really? And then when I was describing it to someone, they were like, I think you're depressed. And it was like this light bulb, like, what? That's
0: what this is? <laughs>
2: This whole I don't want to get out of bed to go get Cheerios at the grocery store because the idea of walking back uphill to this apartment I'm staying at is too it's too overwhelming for me. That's depression. That's what that is.
1: Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so and I love by the way when somebody is working that they're getting depressed because it, you know people out there have this illusion that if your career um, goals are coming true. That depression is eliminated. In, in fact, it, sometimes I think it exacerbates it because you then feel like an ingrate for not being happy.
2: Exactly. I was I was gainfully employed during the height of the recession, and I, that and then and I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to be grateful, and then I couldn't. I couldn't find it, but I—it was the isolation was really hard. Were there not people to hang out with? Well, here's what I did. Do you know Vancouver at all? A little bit. I was there once for, okay. a, for a day. Well, there's uh, you know Boston. Yeah. Okay. There's Boston and there's Cambridge. I was there once for a day. <laughs> <laughs> I only go to cities for a day. Okay. Where where are you from again? I'm from Chicago. Okay. Uh, there's hmm. There's Chicago and there's Indiana. Yeah. <laughs>
1: where i went to school
2: technically you could cross the street and then you're in indiana right yes so uh vancouver's probably main suburb is called burnaby and that's where the show was shot but we shot the pilot in downtown vancouver so i strategically picked a place uh equidistant from those those two places a neighborhood called the drive commercial drive and uh I also didn't want to stay downtown because I knew it was going to be really uh downtowny mm-hmm. and I thought it would be cool to stay in like an area that was uh residential and had houses and parks and trees and stuff and uh no one else I knew lived over there. Oh. So that's I was and I was a good maybe 20 minutes away from anyone that I knew at any moment and the thing about wanting to have that authentic Vancouver experience is you need to know people that live in your neighborhood to have that I don't know families or anyone so i was just in this apartment by myself all of the time incredibly isolated and it is canada so i was afraid to use my phone because i was getting insane roaming charges and just like getting 700 hundred dollar bills a month wow so i was just like afraid to like use it and i would email a little bit but the place i was staying didn't have the best wi-fi so i was just kind of like there all the time with my thoughts Um, But yeah, so I I was incredibly isolated the first season, and it was summer. That was the other thing. Canadian summer's gorgeous, but then there was that that feeling of, like, it's beautiful outside. I'm supposed to be happy, right? So that all kind of compounded it.
1: It's raining in my soul. (laughs) It's beautiful outside, but it's raining in here. I got the cloud. I think that's why rainy days are so comforting on a certain level, because it's like, ah, the outside matches the inside yeah and
2: i do prefer rainy days rainy days on mondays actually make me happy
1: yeah (laughs) instead of getting me down oh i i I kind of there's something so stinky and comforting about uh a a sad rainy uh monday a sad rainy monday yeah because you know that everyone feels (laughs) yeah (laughs) the world work come to you for a moment exactly that's exactly right um Before we move on to your personal story, people may also know your stand-up. You've Mm -hmm. performed on Conan, Jimmy Fallon, all over Comedy Central, festivals galore. um, And you've acted in a couple of movies. You were in Cloverfield. What was the other one? Uh, I was in a bit part in Cloverfield, and I had a scene in The Other
2: Guys, which was cut. Which was great to brag to all my friends, be like, "I'm in this movie," and then people be like, "Where were you in the background somewhere?" I'm like, "But I was on the number one deleted scene in uh, <laughs> the other guys, and uh, did a part in this movie called uh, Black Dynamite,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is a cult classic.
1: Okay, it's become a cult classic. Um, you're African American. Uh, you I say black. I prefer. Yeah. All right, <laughs> I prefer black. Um, how about charcoal? How do you feel about that? Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason I bring that up is um I don't know why I bring that up when I want maybe i w- I want the guests that th- or the listeners that send me the occasional email that are like we you know love the show, how about some more color mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I want them I want them to know well, here I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but that has also been the uh the ongoing struggle of my existence that uh the what it, the black identity, yeah, what the hell is it? And how is it that I fit around it? And that's kind of always been what I I actually am working on a chunk of material about black depression because it's something that I feel like I realized, okay, so a lot of my friends are like, you should go to therapy, you should go to therapy, right? And I only recently realized, was able to pinpoint my resistance, which is to me, It's the final step into whiteness. (laughs) Once I go to therapy, I am am, I'm I'm claiming this land for Caucasian. (laughs) So and then I was just thinking about that. So I started working on this chunk of material that like figuring out that I get depressed and that I never thought of it as a something that black people do. I was always like, that's what white people do. They get depressed. We're just angry. (laughs) And that's it, you know. It's we. I didn't know we get. We're not taught about depression. We're taught about oppression. That's that's the joke, which is a yeah. different
1: oppression. By the way, I love the idea of a bit about that. Um, do you ever feel like when you watch deaf comedy jam and you see? Um, I mean, I see people on Def Comedy Jam uh, breaking new ground. Like, I remember seeing Bernie Mac the first time, and like, oh, this guy is special. He's got his own voice. Yes, He's not doing what other people do. But so often, it seems like the black evening at the improv, where it's like, and now he's going to go to the part where he's pumping his hips, and he's talking about eating pussy, and then he's going to drop the mic. What does it bring up in you when you see comedy like that? Do you just feel like other comedians
2: well yeah i mean generally i mean i'm harder on black comedians because i am one especially because my black identity isn't the one that is uh generally sought after you know it's not like i'm not a def jam comedian and i know plenty of comedians that have aren't Def Jam comedians, but did do Def Jam and did well on Def Jam. And then the people like the Bernie Macs and the, you know, Dave Chappelle's and people who did Def Jam and really stand out as original voices. And then, of course, the great cloud without number that my favorite, favorite thing, Dick Gregory said it, I think, in a, a, um, a documentary about Pryor, that he said that if you took away Pryor's language, like the expletives... His genius is still apparent. He's like, but the problem was this generation of comedians came that thought that the
1: surface was the key to the genius. Exactly. Like Eddie Murphy. When people compare Eddie Murphy to Richard Pryor, I just want to say they couldn't be more different. They couldn't be. And Pryor says that. He says that in his autobiography. He thought that Eddie Murphy's comedy was mean. Absolutely. That it was was just like lash out. No vulnerability at all in Eddie Murphy's. It was all about being a showman. And I suppose because there weren't a variety of, uh, black comedians when Andy Murphy came out, at least to white America, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, that comparison was natural. But there was a, a, a poetry to Richard Pryor's vulnerability that still sticks with me today. I mean, he, he to me is the benchmark of just opening up your rib cage, and here is my fear, my vulnerability, my flaws, and, well,
2: his, I feel like the, the, the question under prior was like, uh, I don't
1: know, like he didn't know and come with me while I try to find out. Absolutely. And I could tell you as a white guy in the 70s who wanted to know more about black culture, but also, you know, all I knew about it was Huggy Bear and <laughs> the pimps and the other shit that was portrayed in the right, media. Right. And it was like... It I I wanted more of that. I couldn't I couldn't get enough of that because mm-hmm. he was cool. Prior you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was cool and and it was um it was wasn't threatening. It mm. it shared his experience in a way that didn't feel like oh he hates me because I'm white.
2: Well, yeah. And he 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 hated white people, but he hated himself (laughs) just as much. But like he, he was a mutual hater, but a mutual lover. Yeah, like and that's what he did. You know, if you want to say that, like prior really popularized white people, black people material. But when you look at his as opposed to what the 90s paradigm of like white people, black people material was his was the celebration of the differences. And put up, put downs and, and build ups in both cultures. That th- these are the things that we both do well, these are the things we don't do well. As so- someone said, he divided his audience and somehow united them at the same time. Which, which is why he is one of, I, he's one of my biggest influences. And I think that him and like, you know, Bill Cosby are like the two sides of a, of a coin. Where Richard Pryor was so open about race and, and Cosby was so absent about race. Like his comment on race was how raceless his act was in my opinion Um, anyway back to your question though which is I almost feel like my audience the black people that because I love black people and I want black people to love me back (laughs) Mm -hmm. I always feel like my audience uh, for my black comedy are the audience the black audience that has become disillusioned with black comedy like the people who are just like oh I don't really care for that those are the people that when they happen upon a comedy show and I'm there they're like oh my you're so different I didn't know this was, and I feel like I'm the first generation of black comic, and this is a lofty generalization, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like I'm the first generation of black comic that didn't have to do the urban rooms. I didn't have to do the Chitlin Circuits, and I did some of those shows, but I just didn't really, I'm like, I always get this extra issue of, and you're we don't think you're funny, and also you're a traitor to our race from a black (laughs) audience, which is like, it's, it's overwhelming.
1: Have you ever felt the feeling in you that you want to express to them, but you don't understand these other comics are so condescending about your intelligence because they're, they don't want to go to a place that I go to?
2: Yeah, but th- and that's the thing. It's like
1: we've, kinda, we've taught
2: the audience what to expect. So it's just like I get this, my intelligence is white. That intelligence is whiteness. That's what white people do, is be smart. Which makes absolutely no sense to me. Right? So, pe- when I'm in a, sometimes in front of a black audience, they look at me like I'm trying to be something that I'm not. When, in fact, if I was trying to do the thing that they thought was authentic, that would be the fakest thing that
1: I could possibly do.
2: But then again, then I start going like, well, I'm generalizing now, and mm-hmm. who knows, blah, blah, blah. You know.
1: Do you ever think to yourself that... The thing that puts you between these two cultures is the very thing that is the uniqueness that all comedians seek. Yeah, yeah I do. Um,
2: and that's a th- and it's a big thing because like my my early jokes were all about what you expect from me as a not only as a black man but as a black comedian in specific, but. The thing about uniqueness is it's unique. <laughs> so if it's like I want a lot, if I want a lot of people to like me in, in one show, you know, sometimes that's too much uniqueness for them to ask. Especially because I feel like they say, you know, like you could say the Def Jam is the best slash worst thing that ever happened for comedy, and you could say that Comedy Central is the best slash worst thing that ever happened for comedy because it was like suddenly there was a place for all these people to get seen but then suddenly there was too many people that were being seen you know and then the crowd the mediocrity kind of is all mixed together Um, and so in that sense like there's this expectation that comedy is supposed to look and feel this certain way and when I and sometimes I feel like I don't fit into that in a black paradigm that sometimes black people are just like wait a minute that's not what comedy is comedy is supposed to be you fuck the stool (laughs) you talk about bitches feats and then you do an impression of an old black preacher what is he doing doesn't he know those other tropes I was saying to somebody the other day that like when it comes down to it I, I had an authentically black childhood but I can't even talk about it because the thing the elements that make it up are hack it's basically like, I grew up in a black neighborhood, gangs, and I didn't have a dad. That's like airplane food jokes. Yeah. It's like the same territory in a way.
1: Do you feel like expressing, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about what you feel being caught between these two cultures in your mind, mm-hmm. Um it, it just seems to me like if you were on stage and you were opening up your heart to the degree you know, that Richard Pryor did about that, I, I would be fascinated to watch comedy about that because I don't think there's anything more compelling than hearing somebody open up their soul about an experience that I haven't experienced. Um, but that's got to be... I don't know about you but that was the scariest thing to in the world to me in a club of drunk people mm. was was to do that. Do you feel like you are being is do you feel like vulnerability is something that you want to bring to your act or is it something that you are hesitant to or where where do, where do you feel about Well, I am
2: I'm riding in that direction right now. Um trying to get more vulnerable but even find out what it is that I feel vulnerable about you know because i sometimes think i get in the web of like i got nothing original to say <laughs> like all my vulnerabilities are hack and uh i also have this mental block about storytelling like i'm convinced that nothing interesting has happened to me i don't see myself as the protagonist in the movie of my own life you know so i'm trying to find those stories because someone accused me this girl i dated who was a comic accused me she was a young comic too of hiding behind my intellect and whilst i disagree with her whilst i disagree with her enough said yeah um it's still uh, I, you know i always go well maybe i am wrong you know like i have to entertain that someone's observation of me could be true Because we all have our blind spots. So let me think about this and let me try to find stories and things I want to say on stage in which I am being an idiot or I am in a position where I don't understand or don't know how to react to things or don't know how to feel about them. So I've been heading in that, trying to head in that direction is to see if she
1: was right. But I think it's yielded a lot of interesting stuff, hopefully. You know, I think my thought on that is it all depends on what you want. To mean to the audience if you want to mean to the audience that you are a, a clever joke writer who works this shit out of an audience's brain uh, when they watch you uh, and then that is then she's wrong but if you want to mean mean to the audience that here's a guy that touches something emotionally in people mm-hmm. um, then I think she then I think she's right. And I would add that you can be both of those things because the intellect part and the clever joke writing is already there. You bring the vulnerability to it, and to me, you got the best of both worlds, and it doesn't have to be either or. Because... You know the the intellectual stuff is just it's naturally going to be there, and you're you're a warm guy. There's a there's a likability instantly about you that um, invites people in. So I think they're they're at the door well, of your soul, waiting to get in.
2: Isn't likability code for boring? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that. Like Richard uh, Pryor was likable. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, on stage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on stage. Let's ask some of his ex-wives how they feel yeah. about that. Um, well, I, I appreciate that, but it's like, and, and I and I and I think that if t- personally, I think the that's kind of the point of stand-up is to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, which one am I? I feel like I'm more interested in that question than taking a stance and being like, I'm a this, and holding steadfast to it, no matter what experiences happen, no matter what changes happen interna- internally. Yeah
1: well I, I can't wait to see what happens in the next five years with your your writing and and where you go because um, to me that's the most exciting part of being an artist is pushing yourself outside your comfort zone you know when i got when I got sober um in two thousand and three, I was suddenly taking chances because my opinion of myself had so greatly Increased. I didn't feel like a piece of shit all the time. So the thought of doing a character on stage was no longer terrifying. And even if an audience didn't get it, I still felt like, no, this is funny shit that, mm-hmm. that, that I'm doing. They're just it's just not their their cup of tea. But the thought of doing that before I got sober and mm. before I went deep into my fear and my resentment and my confusion about who I am in this world. Um in a million years, I, I would have never done it. So when you talk about possibly going to, to therapy, you know, uh, I'm just sitting here in my head screaming, go, 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 go. There's a part of me that's like, well,
2: what if my funny is inside this confusion? And that if I start to feel better about myself, Will the funny go away? And I know that I've heard people talk about that. Like, no, that's a, it's a different thing. It doesn't work that way. Right. But here's my other link to this. And I want to get your opinion on this. And I've said this before. So if anyone listening has heard me on a different podcast, ask this question, it's because it's a fascinating question to me. I think Paul, you're an experienced comedian Mm -hmm. and I've been doing stand up for about 12 years. And I feel like there's this younger generation that is a little after me that really looks up to your generation, right? And sees that a lot of the heroes have this damage and this, some issue that they have some fire in their loins of their souls Mm -hmm. that, that makes them do stand up, that they address on stage that gives them interesting uniqueness. And I think there's a lot of people in this younger generation who have had incredible childhoods and supportive families that are like, well, I gotta manufacture some damage here. I'm, there's a comic once, and I won't say his name, but I remember seeing him at the show, and I was like, I said, "How are you?" Which was the wrong question. <laughs> just, just I walk and hey, how are you? And he was like, oh, "That's that was his first answer." I'm like, "Uh oh." He's like, all these comics that I look up to, and he named a couple people. He's like, they're awful people, and I am aspiring to be an awful person. What does that mean? I am. I'm like, dude, no one's here yet. I don't know if I can deal with this conversation right now. I've got some jokes about squirrels that I want to do tonight. <laughs> so I can't think about anything deep. Um, so I'm just wondering, what do you see or do you think that about like some of the younger generations where like I feel like there are certain tropes that I'm starting to hear that are like... Like you know how every now and then there's certain punchlines that just every comedian starts doing? Like unicorns, all of a sudden everyone has a unicorn in their joke. Um, I feel like I'm starting to hear... And then I went home and cried as like a kind of a, a nice tag, a tag that I keep hearing a lot. And I'm like, does everybody, already everybody going home and crying? Like, when did this pain become like, like, uh, get it? Cause we're all depressed. High fives, abilify, you know,
1: yeah. <laughs> sort of a thing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, my, my thought is every person has some type of, pain anxiety confusion inside them um clearly some more than others and every person can go can always go deeper into what's going on with them and it doesn't your your pain or your whatever doesn't have to be dramatic just the fact that you have anxiety about not and by the way i used to think that my life that i didn't have the richard Pryor experience so how could I ever mean anything to people? Turns out I had to stop doing it in comedy clubs to express what I had to say because mm-hmm. it was too dark. Um I didn't know how to make it palatable, but I didn't think I had any valid pain inside me until I really started going deep. And so I would say don't try to don't try to assume that there isn't something inside there a vein of some rich emotional experience Mm -hmm. until you've gone in there until you've rooted around you know you describing what you experienced in vancouver um i don't know it 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 tells me that there's yeah situationally you might have been in a in a place that um the average person would have start to started to feel that way but very few people, I think, get into comedy um, just purely because they love the craft of writing jokes and they're happy, contented people. I think there's a desperate, you know, the fact that your dad wasn't around. How is there not? How is there not pain in that? I well, have- for me,
2: I mean, I feel like there's some young guys who are just they just like putting some words together, which is fine, but but the words that they're putting together are. They're, they're like playing at
1: pain right. as opposed to they actually may have it. I, and I agree. I And you can usually tell in a second um, that it's not coming from a place that is real, but it's so hard to get vulnerable in front of an audience, especially if they're drunk, to show that, mm-hmm. that true pain. Um, so I don't really know... That the answer to the question, um, I can tell you this much. I think, and I hate to use this analogy because it's so cliche, but when you don't go deep into the root causes of what is driving you, what's driving the bus, what's causing your actions, especially off stage, the way that you can express yourself is a limited number of colors in a palette. When you've gone into that pain and begun to make sense of it. There's probably still some anger there. There's definitely way more perspectives on it, and those are different colors that you can use to express what you're feeling. You can always – I can always tap into my anger. That will that will always be there. But my act used to be consistently hostile and angry and just about suicide and fucking and <laughs> – and it was it was limited you know i would do a little chunk where i talked about politics and stuff but there was uh, there was nothing about me and what made me so angry about people that wanted to control other people mm. until i realized that was my experience as a child was being somebody's object and being controlled mm. so um it it completely changes it may change your desire to want to be a straight monologist in comedy clubs on the road but you will f- probably feel so much more fulfilled as an artist um and and whatever the the jump may be to the next expression of yourself may not be clear right away and it might be confusing but if you keep working at it um especially in with podcasting and and you know the alternative scene i uh, i think it's so much easier for somebody to to explore that part of their um themselves than it was in the 80s when people weren't talking about that except maybe R- Richard Pryor and Louis Anderson but even then Richard Pryor was kind of at the tail end of his his relevance he right. was really kind of being destroyed by his his demons and his addictions right um so that's that's kind of my thought on that is it just brings more colors to how you can express yourself
2: right right The palatability is a big concern for me because it does. There is that that uh, talk about that
1: then. What? Oh, your palatability. Yeah, yeah, that's true. About about your anxiety, you know. Always go to, you know. One of the things I learned in improv is always use what is right there. When I first started doing uh, the my TV gig, my co-host and I clashed like crazy because I had an idea of how it should be, and then the light bulb went off with what I'd learned um, in learning improv which was use what is right in front of you and all of a sudden I had a gold mine of moments to play mm. because I I used it and I think you've got a unique experience in front of you that you're afraid to use because you think it's not valid or edgy enough. But <laughs> the degree to <laughs> which true, yeah. the degree to which you express the part of yourself that you want to hide is The edginess. Okay. I like that. Just my thoughts. Yeah. Just my thoughts. I once had
2: a teacher and I went to theater school Mm -hmm. and I once had a teacher uh, tell me, (laughs) she said, I think that you are afraid that if you open yourself up, that there's nothing in there. Yes. But uh, uh, And her punchline was, but I'm telling you, that's not true. And, and, and um, I still yes. like that, still haunts me. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like what does that mean?
1: And I don't even know you that well, Baron. You know, we met each other for five minutes before you came in here. True. We saw J- each other in an a elevator in Chicago
2: recently, right? um were you at the JFL? You are at JFL?
1: No. No. It was it Montreal. Nope. I haven't been to Montreal. In... Bridgetown. Bridgetown. That's right.
2: Bridgetown or Moon Tower? No, Brunchtown. Bridgetown. 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 So we saw each other in yeah elevator. You know, elevators. <laughs> It's a combination elephant
1: elevator. Um And, and I was like, oh, Paul Gilmartin. And you were like,
2: oh, yeah, that's my impersonation. <laughs> uh,
1: well, I had heard you on somebody else's podcast and I wanted to get you. Did I ask you then to come to my podcast? Um I feel like it was pretty soon after we had run into
2: each other again recently that you emailed me. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not exactly sure.
1: Uh, I'd heard you on somebody else's podcast and I thought... I, I should I should get him as a as a guest. I think he'd I think it'd be interesting. Cool. Um, and so, so far, far so far so good. Oh, I was going say so he, far so disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's I think there's every person has something unique that is about them and what sets them apart from connecting to other people is their ability to express it and by going to therapy and going to support groups you hone that ability to express what's going on inside yourself so it can only help you as a stand-up comedian i think one of the questions is how comfortable are you possibly making less money for a period of time while you find that new thing right this moment not that comfortable. Yeah. I, I couldn't be more broke. <laughs> more broke and more people wanting money from me than yeah. I than I have. You, you know, I, I think I only need to, to point to somebody like Mark Marin to say, here's a guy who was ready. I remember him saying to me about six months before he started doing his podcast, um, uh, what's the fucking point? I'm just ready to give up and, and, and get a day job. And I remember saying to him you have something unique about you. I didn't dream that it would be the podcast, but you know, he's somebody who I felt like had a voice. I when I would watch him do stand up, I would be envious of the places that he would go. Um and I mean, Christ, he's the he's the the standard. He's he inspired me to start this podcast cuz I was like, "Wow, people do want to hear about pain and they do want to hear um that kind of stuff right. so um, I think the world is changing in, in terms of what they want to hear I think what you're afraid to leave people are wanting less of I think podcasts are raising the standard by which the audiences expect some type of emotional expression so, so let's let's switch gears to, to talk about your um, your shallow childhood <laughs> <laughs> so shallow yeah Uh, so shallow start off with the whining would you uh yeah uh well where do you want me to start uh what was your what was your childhood like where were you raised well
2: i was born uh in tupelo mississippi which is right near one polo. okay i was born in portalis new mexico incredibly small town that i don't remember um my mother was 19 when she had me um She turned 23 days later. Her birthday is right after mine. And uh, she was in college at the time. And (laughs) my great grandparents, her grandparents were upset because she had uh, had sex outside of marriage, which that's how old school they were. And my grandmother was upset that my mom wasn't getting an abortion because that's how progressive she was. So my mother had me and then my great grandparents raised me until I was probably about six in a different town called Tucumcari, New Mexico. Route 66 goes smack dab through the middle of it. Um, my father is a man named Kenneth. That's about as much as I know. They were 19. And as far as I understand it, um, he pieced out the moment he found out she was pregnant. He was like, what? I'm out. And the details are sketchy to me. It's only been recently that I, uh, I'd say the last five years, that I've been really interested about my family's past, my mother's past, and my grandmother's past, because we just never talked about that stuff. And it, I, I don't know that it was in a sense of, oh, don't talk about it, it's it's evil secrets, just as much as it wasn't a priority. Nobody was really that interested in, t- in it until the people who had the information died. And they were like, well, where, where is that? Is anyone Has anyone written that down? We don't know where it is. So the details of where my dad went, how he left, how he disconnected from my mother. Because when I think about it, like, well, he was 19 in college. Did he just leave college? Did he just move out of town, like skip town?
1: Um, so I don't know. What does your mom say when you ask her these questions?
2: Um, I haven't really asked. I'm afraid to ask. I think. I, I I don't know exactly how painful it is or isn't for her. And again, I've begun, become curious about it because I've never been curious about my dad in general. I just heard he wasn't a good guy. I heard he was abusive, physically abusive. Um, but it's only been recently that I've been curious about like what qualities of, do I share
1: with him? You know, because I don't know. What's the fear that comes up in asking your mom? Um, what do you picture in your head going wrong i guess i
2: I guess the the just the the mere idea that I might make her cry upsets me i and I know she won't she's a strong person
1: you know um she's become a very strong person. What was she busy doing that she couldn't raise you at nineteen? was she still studying
2: school okay. Yeah. She was, she was going to school, and she was working a full-time job at the exact same time. Uh, as as I remember it, it took her six years to finish college, to get her degree. And it, then you moved back in with her? Well, I was in Tucumcari, New Mexico, with my great-grandparents, Gladys and Robert, and uh, very churchy people, you know, like Southern. They, they had come from Oklahoma, but the roots go back to North Carolina and Tennessee, and Uh, They were just very old school, Southern, classic kind of Southern black people. Uh, Southern Baptist Church, very important to them. Church every single day of the week. Something to do, whether it's clean the drapes or have a sing. There was something to be done at the church. Let's go to the church. Um, And so my mother was in college this entire time. And I was with them until probably five or six. And I remember the moment my mother drove up. I specifically remember I was in this living room of this house this little house in Tucumcari, New Mexico I feel like I was in a little boy suit Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't remember why and I remember her car Chevy Nova baby blue Chevy Nova pulling up to the front and her getting out of it and I was looking out of this screen door at her and I had this dual moment of I remember I know who that's my mother and also, I don't know this woman. I felt both those things, like I don't know who that is, but that's my mom. And I didn't know I remember feeling in that moment. I don't know how to react right now. Should I run to her and hug her? Should I just stand here and wait till she says hi? I, don't, <laughs> I remember feeling that and that. that must have been incredibly confusing it It was very confusing, but i but I did have the the like i'll I'll see how this plays out. I remember, I remember, I remember yes-handing the situation. <laughs> That's my mother, yes, would and be, I'm going to see how this plays out. Would it be fair to say that you were happy and nervous? Yeah, more, probably more nervous. It was probably more nerves than happiness. Yeah, I wasn't like excited or joyful as much as like, oh, what's, what's happening right now? Just kind of like, oh, this is interesting. That's what I remember feeling. Why
1: was being raised by your grandmother never an option? Well, my grandmother was a busy woman. And she – because when my mom
2: got me, we, we lived in uh, Tucumcari, New Mexico for another year, I believe, um, and which is one of the most – at the time especially, one of the most impoverished uh, states in the country. And there was just no work. Where my grandmother was in Las Vegas, Nevada, which was until the, this recession started – the fastest growing city in the United States for like a good two decades strong. So it was like we moved there because there
1: was all this work to be done. Does that statistic mean outside of VD? Uh,
2: yeah, yes, yes. Okay. Outside of us, uh, literal employment. <laughs> you mean Vegas disease? Uh, that's what I caught. Uh, but yeah, so my grandmother was in Vegas. She didn't live in New Mexico. And my mother was in a different city in New Mexico. So my grandmother was further away. I got you. And she... And that's very, and it is very sketchy to me what was going on with my grandmother because she was living in Vegas by herself. My grandfather, her husband, the father of my mother lived in Des Moines, Iowa, and they were not together. And I do not remember them being together, but I remember them being friends through my youth. And we went to see him once when I was a kid. And that's the only time I remember really being around him. Um, But they maintained this friendship and I and I have theories about my grandmother now that she's gone of like Perhaps she was gay. Perhaps she was asexual even it was never this priority to like be in a marriage Or to be near a man. Just she liked being alone And sometimes I think that she had my mother almost as a sense of duty. Like I got to put something on this planet That's biological. Yeah, so uh, hi nice to meet you Charlotte Um, but yeah, so she but she would visit a lot. And so I had this really good relationship with her before I knew my mom, I feel like. And me and my grandmother always had a great relationship. One probably the most influential person on me in my life. And it was in the middle of 3rd grade that we relocated to Vegas. So, we didn't live in that neighborhood that long. Um and we moved to Vegas to be with my grandmother. And then it was me, my mother, my grandmother, which was my dynamic until I was twelve, when my stepfather came into the p- picture. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was you know it was culture shock <laughs> as well. I mean, I was like, oh, desert to a hotter desert. So that was that was basically basically it. But like, of course, Vegas is like this idea. And even as a kid, I was I had this sense that like Vegas was some magical
1: other place. Other things happen there. I don't know what'll happen. Las Vegas. Des Moines, in mm-hmm. New Mexico, what is it genetically that makes you, your family, afraid to be around other black people?
2: <laughs> well, my, my, my neighborhood growing up in, in Tucumcari was, was very culturally mixed. It, um, when we moved to Vegas, we were at first in North Las Vegas, which is the ghetto. Do you know Kyle Grooms at all? Mm-mm. Kyle Grooms is a New York uh, comedian. He's the first person... That when I said North Las Vegas, he's like, "Oh yeah, that's the ghetto." Like he's the first person that has ever recognized that Vegas had a ghetto and that I grew up in it. And then there was this moment I'm like, "He, he has just legitimized my blackness. This is the first time <laughs> this has ever happened." Um, he's like, "Oh yeah, that's the ghetto. I know the ghetto of Vegas." Um, so, but there, my 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 growing up, it was like white people, black people, uh, Asians, uh, Latinos, and the evasive Native American. We also had in in Tucumcari, New Mexico. Why do you say evasive? Because there's not a lot of neighborhoods where there's Native American people that are living there. Are they mostly on reservations? They're mostly on reservations and they're they're and they're far and few in between. Hmm. But I grew up with a couple of kids that were Native American kids in my neighborhood. So uh, and then I've never experienced that ever since.
1: That like there's Native Americans in my neighborhood except, Just, except for the jackass that tells you they're 1/16th Cherokee.
2: Yes, exactly. That that jackass, but but you know if if your percentage is lower than fifty, <laughs> then I st- that and I was I was higher than fifty when I was a kid, you know eighty percent up even some you might even say a hundred with some of these yeah. mofo's, um, and so we that I was just always in this culturally diverse neighborhood. Then we moved to Vegas, black and Latin. That was that was it. Uh, and then we moved to a different side of Vegas, which
1: was you, what. I was just going to say, you know, it just occurred to me, the people that always feel it necessary to to let you know that they're a sliver of Native American, it now makes sense to me because it's a way of saying, my people were here first.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I own one-sixteenth of this land. (laughs) (laughs) One-sixteenth of
1: one-sixteenth of this land is mine. I'm I'm not as big of an oppressor as you are, genetically. You
2: thought I was just white. Turns out... (laughs) I'm oppressed. Yeah, um, my
1: fil- my folks killed each other. Exactly. Uh, um, I'm sorry I, I, I no. cut you off. I just felt a need to to share that.
2: That's totally fine. It's Your podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this uh, would be a good time, to to, to, to plug your uh, podcast, which is called Deep Shit. Yes, Deep Shit. And uh, you have your guest pick a topic from their life, and then you guys go deep into, uh, into that.
2: Yes, deep deep as we possibly can. Uh, we're, I'm very tangential, mm-hmm. uh, me and my guest. And uh, I like to have people on more than once as well, uh, because I think it's interesting to hear the evolution of the relationship between the two people. Uh, especially if it's somebody I don't really know that well, then I start to find a rhythm with them. And it's just always the dynamics are always different and interesting to me. Um, and so, yeah, I'll have people like like I just did uh, – who did I um, – Johnny Pemberton was on, and we did um, Belonging. Mm. Um, I just did Human Nature with somebody, uh, Mortality, um, Heroes. My writing partner, Benari Poulton is his name wrote his thesis on Superman. And so we had both seen Man of Steel. Have you seen it? Mm -mm. It's fascinating. A lot of people have been talking about it, but his response was, it's very telling about who America is right now, that this movie exists, that we have no problem believing a guy can fly. But when it comes to him giving a shit about anyone besides himself, we need to be hit over the head with reasons for that. It's like, what? Why would he... (laughs) He's got powers. Why does he care? Why does he tweet? If I had powers, (laughs) I'd just rob banks and fuck bitches. What is he doing? Um, so that, so we, we talked about heroes just as an idea and what we need from heroes as a,
1: as a culture, as a society. Stuff like that. You know, as you're, as you're sharing this stuff and your, your passion for wanting to go deeper, I just keep thinking, mine that shit. And in your, in your stand-up. Well, that's
2: why I started the podcast, because yeah. I'm, like, I, I, I'm trying to reveal to myself how I actually feel about these yeah. things, that's, so I can figure it
1: out on stage. That's great. That's great.
2: Well, thanks, Paul. <laughs> I mean, I try.
1: Um, so um, get back to uh, Vegas. So then you're living with your, your grandmother and your mom and your stepdad. Yeah. Uh, no. Well, before my stepdad, we were in this part of
2: Vegas uh, called North Las Vegas, North Town. We were relatively close to Nellis Air Force Base, kind of a rough neighborhood, very gangy. That was a big thing. We didn't really have gangs in new mexico we had we had just poor, but then moving to Vegas, it was like now there was this especially in the early nineties when it was like every day on the news he's young, he's black, he has no ideology, he's angry, and he's coming for you and I'm like, that's everyone I know. <laughs> I look in the mirror i'm like i that's me what what who are they talking about So there was this constant feeling this this essence of uh fear and something's going to happen like the, the 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 drive-by shooting this this thing that is it's a it's a shark that is out there and it will attack and it will happen and you will not be prepared it is impossible to know and you will probably die or someone you know will die there was just always that feeling was
1: there right what, what? that's fucking intense yeah, and you know, like, how is your how is your experience not valid? You just but shared here's, that. But here's the thing. Okay, so this is where I started to go. So,
2: th- but there are black people who I know that have been shot. You know that that I haven't been shot. I wasn't shot or stabbed because I stayed inside. I was like, that's the, all that stuff's outside. The shooting and the stabbings are inside. I'm going to stay indoors and watch Nick at Night as
1: as day as the day is long. Um. By, so, the way, by the way, did the gang members all wear pinky rings because it was Vegas? Yeah, basically, no. Um,
2: well, I would, the mafia at least has respect. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, and, and like we were uh, – Vegas had imported the Los Angeles gangs. So everyone was very aware of the Bloods and the Crips. And, and I, I still am unclear as to whether – how many actual gangsters I was around as opposed to how many wannabes – because the wannabes were sometimes worse to me. Because the wannabes were so desperate to prove that they were gangsters. Mm-hmm. But they don't know anyone. It's like, but they want to stab somebody. They want to rob somebody. And the people that they're most likely to do that to are the people that they knew. I had friends rob me all the time. Really? They would just take shit. Like, I would be at home h- hanging with some friends. And then my grandmother would be come home and be like, hey, what happened to my... Co-? Like, she... My grandmother gambled, but like Mm one, like she didn't have a gambling problem because she knew when to stop and she would have like just buckets of change all the time. That was one of her favorite things to do, which is count change and watch television. And so she'd have like a big fat bucket of quarters, 50, 60, 70, sometimes a hundred dollars worth of quarters under the bed, under her bed. And um, she didn't keep them very well hidden. And so if I had friends over sometimes and they were like in my room, because I shared my room with my grandmother for most of my young life, um, they would just take it. And she'd be like, what happened to my quarters? I'm like, what? Your quarters are gone. And then, of course, all my friends would just be like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And J- I'm like... Jingle, well,
1: jingle, jingle. Yeah, I don't know
2: what you're talking about. Jingle, <laughs> jingle, jingle. Anyway, we're going to go put some money in meters and, and, and play arcade games. We just got all these quarters out of nowhere. But, they're like, but also, I was like, well, these are the only people I know. Like, I can't not be... Who am I going to be friends with? I have to be friends with the kids that are robbing me. <laughs> Until I found some, like, nerdy kids. Um, what was that like? Finding nerdy kids? Yeah. Well, we moved from the rougher part of Vegas to... A less rough part it became rougher when I go there when I go back to Vegas now sometimes I drive around the neighborhood I spent more of my life in because I was probably in North Las Vegas from third to fifth grade then we moved to a part that was closer to the Mirage because when the Mirage opened my mom got a job there so once we moved to that side we were in this apartment complex and I kind of stumbled upon some kids and I, I, I don't remember how it happened I almost want to feel like it was just I almost want to say that I was on a school bus and just kids were declaring out loud to no one at all the things that they liked and then we kind of gravitated toward each other i enjoy sega genesis so i'm like ah i'll sit next to you then hello what's your name i'm jose and then uh started becoming friends with kids that like video games and stuff like that and like i had my nerdy phases like i was really into video games i was really into comic books i was really into comic book trading cards but never at the same time It was just kind of i kind of jumped from one to another And then, uh, like, my love of favorite comic books ended because I walked one hour, I was more like 35, 40 minutes, from my place to the comic book store that was closest to me. And then one day when I got there, it was just closed for business. And I was like, what? And next door was a place called Pool Sharks. I'm like, guess I'm in the billiards now. (laughs) And I just walked in there and started trying to, because I had a pocket full of quarters from my grandma. I was going to buy some comic books, but now I can play some pool, I guess. Uh and that was kind of the I didn't read a comic book until a couple years ago when Jackie Cation insisted I read this particular thing and I'm like, "Oh, I like comics again. hooray I'm an adult." Uh so I found these kids um Norman and Fred. Uh there was Jose 1, then there was Raimundo, then there was Jose 2. And uh, Jose 2 was after Norman and Fred, so there was Jose 1 and Raimundo and those were my friends, and then there was Norman and Fred, and they were into Dungeons and Dragons. They were into it. And I and also Eddie Murphy, they were in the Eddie Murphy and Dungeons and Dragons. What a combination. I know. Exactly. And we played ghetto D&D, as I described it, because we didn't fill out sheets of like charismatic or my charisma and my strength and my stamina. We It was all about rolling dice. These invented ways to use dice to simulate fighting. That was that was all we ever really did, and that's all I was ever really concerned about. And also, maybe there was a sense of, like, we're in Vegas, and we're using dice. This is all makes sense. <laughs> Ten-sided. Um, and then also, again, there was still a lot of, like, I, I felt like the sense of gangs started showing up in that neighborhood. Uh, but then, like, um, it kind of just ended, you know, in – what, what's that book? Freakonomics? That claims it was like, oh, legalized abortion. That's why – gang violence just kind of dropped off but it did drop off i remember the it was like 93 or 94 like me like eighth grade where suddenly this threat of stride bars are gonna happen you're gonna get stabbed you're gonna get shot was just lessened and i felt the the tension kind of fall off of people's shoulders i remember feeling it in the air like it just felt less humid or something in some way wow where this 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 pall of inevitable danger just kind of had lifted and everything was a little lighter. Um, and it could also have been that by the time I went to high school in 8th grade I I think I started playing the violin when I was like 3rd or 4th grade or something. And because um, when I was in middle school elementary school and middle school I got put in like the gifted education programs because I was so smart. <laughs> um, I was in a I wasn't a straight A student because I, I was generally bored by things, but I guess the teachers had determined from my demeanor and my ability to engage in class and engage in discussions that even though I wasn't turning into homework, perhaps I just wasn't interested in homework. So when I got to middle school, I was playing violin and stuff like that. I was an orchestra. And in eighth grade, uh, the librarian of my middle school was the wife of the principal of this brand new performing arts high school that had opened in Las Vegas. And I was the class clown um, because I could make kids laugh and I was always getting sent to the principal's office for talking. But also I had the ability to read directly off a page without messing up words. So it was just kind of like, Baron, can you read that chapter for us? And I could put something into it and then some kids were like, you know, you should go to this high school I've been hearing about, I'm like there's a uh, performing arts. You should go talk to Miss Gary about it. So I went to talk to the uh, the school librarian and she was like, yeah, here's an application. And then I ended up auditioning and going to this performing arts high school. Even though I was still living in the same neighborhood, I just kind of just connected myself from the entire neighborhood. Like my high school friends became my friends and they lived in completely different parts of Vegas. So they'd drive to me, pick me up and take me somewhere else. But when I was in my own neighborhood, I didn't go, in, I just stayed at home. Sometimes I would walk to the 7 or 11. So perhaps this pall of danger, I was just less in the world in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense.
1: And maybe that's why I felt it as well. You know what that sound means. It's time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. And our sponsor this week is On It, uh, it is your one stop shopping for all your health. And fitness needs. Uh, the website is uh, onnit dot O n n i t, and uh, they sent me like a care package of stuff to try. And the f- the first thing that I tried is it's called their Hemp Force, and it is a chocolate protein um, powder that you make a shake out of. And they th- there's no soy, no gluten, no dairy, and um, oh, and no sugar and I u- made the recipe uh, that they have on the side of the thing, and holy fuck, is it good. Um, I added a banana. I added a little bit of coconut juice. Um, I added their Trilogy Nut Butter, which I have to tell you, I was so relieved to find out it wasn't the semen of three separate guys. Uh, it is the raw nut butter of cashews, almonds, and walnuts, and it is... I Literally, I had it every morning after I tried it the first time and um, it's so good the other thing they gave me is a kettlebell um, I think it's like 20 pounds and uh, I'm going to be honest I don't see that ever getting lifted unless there's a vacuum running um, but thank you it for uh, sponsoring this show and um, go check it out on the website all kinds of good stuff there have you you know as you as you describe your your stories of things like switching on and off kind of a binary way have you always been kind of a binary person where where things just end abruptly and another thing begins or is that just hmm. be- because of the circumstances of what your life was and it's like okay this is more convenient I'll I'll do this now wow i don't know i mean it 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 always has
2: felt this is more convenient this is more logical in that sense like this other thing i was doing no longer makes sense i can't justify it mm-hmm. <laughs> therefore vis-a-vis i will i got gotcha. you partake in this thing okay but it, it was kind of like it's expensive to be a nerd <laughs> <laughs> like as a kid like i like these nerdy things but like I was, and I was envious of all the kids that had all the trading cards and all the, the comic books. And I'm like, I can't afford all that stuff. So there was a point where I'm just like, I just can't keep company. I can't keep up with these kids. So I detached from those things and, and maybe some of those people as well. See. Uh, my grandmother surprised me by getting me uh, Sega Genesis when I was in like third grade, third, fourth grade. So I had that um, early earlier than some of the other kids in my neighborhood and I was like I was like I was the cool kid I had the video games Um even though I couldn't afford all of the video games I had to rent the games so like oh I rent this for three days but uh yeah so it just kind of like it, it did kind of switch for me where it's just kind of like I just got interested in something else and the other thing didn't hold my interest anymore or it, it became too cost
1: prohibitive to pursue that interest. Do you remember? Was there was there a moment when you realized that you wanted to be a performer for a living? Yes.
2: Um, my my jokey answer, even though it's absolutely true. In church, back in New Mexico, I was cast as Wise Man Number Three in the Nativity play, and I was immediately upset that I was Number Three. <laughs> no lines. No lines. Only wise man one spoke, and he spoke for all three of us. All three of us, frankincense and gold and myrrh, right? He said it. We brought you frankincense, myrrh, and gold, or whatever order. I always remember thinking, why isn't gold first? Isn't that the most important thing? And I remember doing the play in front of the church, and he said the line, and I just remember thinking, I could do that so much better. (laughs) And that's that's where, and my great-grandmother used to think that I was going to be a preacher, because I was so interested in church, but I was always interested in the theatricality of it, and that the preacher was a guy on a stage talking. Everyone was with him. So I was like, yes, I want that. And I guess when I was a kid, I saw it as
1: you, that you were had to be a preacher. That was the guy that did that. Was there a feeling as a kid that, that made that so enticing to you? Was there a feeling that the real you wasn't being seen or heard by people that were important in your life? Or am I reading too much into it? Hmm. Um, At first... That's a possibility. I, I would, at
2: first, when I became interested in performing, not so much, but then after that, once we moved to Vegas, that became, I, I would say that became more of, a, of, of the situation. At first, my great grandparents were, like I said, they were old school. They were kind of children meant to be seen, not heard. Um, although they did engage me, and they were always matter of fact about things. They, did, they never gave me the answers you would give to a kid. You know, about like, uh, well, th- where do babies come from? There's a stork, you know, they were like, I don't think I ever asked where do babies come from, but I think if I would have asked, I think I was afraid to ask because I knew they would have told, they would have told me. <laughs> I would have been the kid that knew. Um, figured out there was no Santa Claus very early because it's easy to figure that out when you're poor. When you're like, mm-hmm. I didn't get any presents. So did Santa Claus, Santa Claus hate me or is my mom buying presents and she can't afford them? right so I figured that out and I remember I remember when I figured out on my own there was no Santa and feeling sorry for the kids that still thought there was a Santa Claus they're like oh Santa brought me all these things I'm like your parents brought you all those things that's very lucky for you but um, there is no Santa Claus I would know see you later Um, because when we moved to Vegas and uh, you know I'll I'll tease it because I don't want to Interrupt your structure. I don't know what your structure is necessarily.
1: There really isn't.
2: It's a structureless structure. (laughs) Put order to chaos. My mother um, is a recovering alcoholic. So when we moved to Vegas, she was dealing with that. But I didn't really understand it until, until middle school when it really began to affect me. And so she would go to work. She would come home. She would lock herself in the bathroom, and then when she came out, she was this other person. And at first, I didn't really get it. I didn't get that she was drinking a lot. You know, I just thought that she was funner. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like suddenly, like she was she was upset. She was angry. She'd come home, and then she'd come come out of the bathroom and be like, "Hey, let's do some stuff." I'm like, "All right, hooray!" And then it wasn't until mi- when we moved closer to the Mirage and when. My I, around when my stepfather came into my life and a, l- a little bit before that and during him there is when it got darker when it became like she's my enemy <laughs> it was like she was my friend and then suddenly it was like she was trying to exert some sort of control over me to change me um, so I wouldn't be I wouldn't go down this path and, and sometimes I think and I wonder is this connected to my father? Did she see possibly the qualities
1: in me that she saw my father and she didn't want me to be that guy? What do you think she saw in you? Because you sounded like such a non-threatening, sweet kid, but I may have been enigmatic,
2: you know, and mysterious and that you couldn't really tell what I thought about things, you know, about what I did and didn't like. And from the outside perspective... I dropped interest in things so quickly. Maybe to her. Where it's just kind of like I was really into this thing and then suddenly I didn't care about it anymore. Which I just think isn't that a kid? That's what a kid does. Hooray, new toy! Yeah, it's old now. Right? Um, but, well, that's what I wonder. You know, we, we haven't really talked about that specific part of my life, of our life. But then also my grandmother was such a good buffer because she was there. And, um,
1: she was so wise, always I felt. Would your grandmother ever say anything to your mother about your your mother's drinking?
2: This is the this is the, this is where I feel my grandmother wasn't so wise. I think that my grandmother was too dismissive to my mother. She used to she used to say that's just drunk talk is what she would say, and so she would when my mother was very you know inebriated and my grandmother just kind of dismissed it all as drunk talk and don't listen to her and i didn't really know how to take it um it wasn't until later again that i saw when i look back at those times that my mother was actually you know classic crying for help that she wanted some help that she needed some help um but even when she was saying specifically those things but she was drunk. My grandmother kind of just, it was a wash. Like what things would she say? She would say uh, things like, I'm hu- I hurt. Like I am hurting. I'm, I'm upset. I do want help. She was clear about it. Saying this to your mom or to you? Both of us. Saying this to my mother, but I was there. I was present. And maybe my grandmother, as a as a means of trying to protect me, because I was witnessing these conversations. I was just there. There wasn't a lot of places. We were in an apartment. wasn't a lot of places to That's go.
1: Such heavy shit for a kid to be around.
2: Perhaps. I mean, I guess I grew up relatively early in that way, you know. So it was like because at first, like I, she was fun, and then it did get dark. It, it did get a little, uh, sometimes a little physical abuse, which. I never really, because my great-grandparents were old-school Southern, they, they were spankers. And anytime I got spanked by my great-grandparents, I knew why. I cannot say, even to this day, they were wrong at any point. I disobeyed them. I specifically did something they told me not to do. I got spanked. Suit the crime to the, the punishment. Right or punishment to the crime, but then when it, it, it but then when it was me, my mother and like she got physical with me, it was always unclear as to why, and I was like, I don't know that I did anything wrong to deserve this, but there was also a part of me that's like, she thinks she's disciplining me, just let her have this, in a sort of
1: a way. So, you know, as you as you talk about this, I think of that that classic thing where the child feels like the parent so often
2: and that and i did feel that way you know and uh honestly the biggest fight we got into when she would get physical with me was when it's it's like almost like the tv movie i would find where she where she hid her alcohol and i would get rid of it i would pour it out i'd go and find all the beer and pour it down the drain i'd find where she hid her vodka and pour it down the drain and then i would leave it out for her to see that I did these things. You know, I poured your vodka out. You know, it's like, she, I found it. I know where you, I'm going to find it.
1: I'm, I'm the alcoholic, but <laughs> I'm going to find your alcohol. It sounds to me like your cry for help. You know, like, fuck, I'm a kid here. You know, I'm, I'm. I see what you're doing. Yeah. Maybe, may
2: maybe. But I was just like, it was, I. I, I almost want to say it was more me standing my ground. That it's just like, look, I know what you're doing. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take it. I poured it out, and I want you to see that I poured it out.
1: What? I don't think any person listening to this thinks you did wrong by doing that. But what do you remember thinking or feeling when you would pour it out? Was it because you were solely concerned for her safety, or do you feel like she wasn't showing up as your mom, or both? Hmm. Or some other reason. Probably
2: more that she wasn't showing up as my mom. And that... You know, like when I said it got dark, I didn't like how she... I wasn't a fan of who she was anymore when she was drunk. And... She started getting mean? She was very... She got very mean. You know, and like I said, we got physical. We got into physical altercations. Very verbally abusive all of the time. Um, Here's a specific memory I remember. Uh... I'm I i I'm not uh, dirty, but I'm not clean. I'm messy. There's a difference between messy and dirty. Dirty is just like mm-hmm. there's just, everything's disgusting. But I clean up after myself, but I'm messy because I'll put things in piles. Mm-hmm. I know what's in the piles. And that's how I kept my room when I was a kid. But like I said, I, I shared a room with my grandmother, so there was two people's things in there. But usually my grandmother kept her stuff in a very specific area because she was an adult and knew how to do that. And I would just put things in the piles. And my mother... Did not like how my room looked, and I never understood because it wasn't her room; she didn't have to come in there, you know. But when she did come in there, she was upset about it. I'm like, well, then don't come in. Tell me to come out of the room, you know. Or when you come in, accept that this is how the room will look, right? But maybe she was just like, no, I'm disciplinary, and you're supposed to do what I say. I remember uh, getting into some fight about her about cleaning my room, and I was ignoring her. And then I went to sleep and I remember waking up and like my eyes kind of opening. I was like, why, are, why, are, why is the light on in my room? And then I hearing a vacuum cleaner and my mother was just running a vacuum cleaner over anything that was in the room. And I remember thinking, that's not how a vacuum cleaner works. You're going to break this vacuum cleaner. And I <laughs> calmly got out of the bed took the vacuum cleaner from her, unplugged it from the wall, um, went to the sliding door of our apartment complex, and did a spin and just threw it out into the parking lot. <laughs> this was probably 1130 at night. And just threw it. And how old were you at that point? Was this? I, I, I think this was probably high school. Okay. Maybe a freshman or a sophomore in high school. And I just threw it. <laughs> And she was standing there just looking at me, kind of with the, you know, the drunk wobble where her eyes are kind of open and she's just kind of looking at me. And then I just went back to sleep. That's a very specific memory.
1: How could that not be? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um,
2: But yeah, she was very, she was very just, I disobeyed her. I. I didn't heed her I always kind of Took everything in stride And I, kind of, I wrote her off You know And that I Decided She was not To be listened to She doesn't know What she's talking about And That there was also No talking to her You know Um There was a moment Where I got kicked out Of the house That was interesting Should I go? Should I go? Yeah. Should I go? Yeah <laughs> My grandmother like she she you know taped things she she was never intimidated by electronics uh as an older woman just like oh, programming every VCR to tape oh they've got VCRs that tape two programs at the same time she just knew it all right and she saw that I was interested in television and interested in performing perhaps and then one day I think because the school, she was a custodian for the Clark County School District and um she brought home a, a, a camcorder one day and uh, maybe it was because a school was getting rid of it, and she was like, I'll take this to Baron. And she had this camcorder you could pop a VHS tape, a regular VHS tape straight into it and tape stuff. I remember trying to make movies with my friends and stuff like that. And so one day, but it was our camcorder. It was the family's camcorder. It wasn't specifically for me. Um, even though my grandmother felt, I felt like she knew I would be the one that used it the most because I liked to tape crap for no reason. And I remember wh- I came home from school one day, And my mother was messing with the camcorder and I remember seeing her sitting on the couch with the camcorder and she was just messing with it and she had thought I had broken it. The person who probably took care of it more than anything else and was sober at the time I had broken the camcorder. Sure, mom. And I don't remember what I, I said something, I, I, I said something that was very monotone and direct. And she didn't like it. So I went into the kitchen and I said whatever I said to her. I don't remember exactly what it is. Uh, and then I went into the kitchen and went to pour my, went to drink another two liter of Sprite. And she pushed me. She came out of nowhere from behind me just pushed me and Sprite spilled everywhere. And I, I remember feeling just crazy in that moment. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? And she's like, who are you talking to? I'm like, I'm talking to you, bitch. What the fuck are you doing? And then she, <laughs> then the wrestling match happened. She kind of tried to push me up against the wall, tried to give me like a, an elbow to the throat, and I pushed her off, overpowered her. And then I ran to my room. And by this time, my stepfather was in my life. Really, uh, we've never had the best relationship. Um, he He courted me for the year that he was courting my mother. Sure. And then once they were married it just kind of flipped. Like, he was like, now I'm your father and I need to teach you how to be a man. And I was like, I'm not interested in anything that you're interested in. Um But he, I want to say by all means, was an enabler. And I ran to my room, you know, because he was convinced that I was the problem as well in some way. And I ran to my room and uh they... My room had no doorknob, and neither did the bathroom in the hallway that was, quote-unquote, my bathroom, because I woke up really early to get ready for school, because school was, like, at 7. I had to wake up at 4.30 to get ready to leave. Jesus. Because the bus left at 6.30, and I was a 30-minute walk from the bus. So if I didn't walk out of my home at 6 a.m., I would miss the bus.
1: You had to walk a half hour
2: to the bus? Yes, yes, 25 minutes. Specifically, I timed it. If I didn't, if I lived lived at six, I had to walk pretty briskly to get there in time.
1: Yeah. So, what would happen if you missed the bus? Just go home?
2: I would go home, and nine out of ten times my grandmother would wake up and drive me to school. That's generally what happened. Because she worked uh, nights. She worked like three to 11 when school was out. She went. She didn't want to be around the kids. She wanted to clean up, and I'm not going into the classroom that has the snake in it. That was her one rule. The end. Um, so, yeah, most of the time she would wake up and, and, and drive me to school. So at ni- when I'd get home from school was when she was leaving. So at, during the night, the normal hours, my mom would get home at 5, and that's when all the stuff would happen. My grandmother was never present for it because she was at work. So I ran into my room. This might have been a time where my grandmother was staying somewhere else because there was times where she would take long uh you know, respites from my family mm-hmm. and like stay with a friend. And uh I ran to my room after this altercation with my mom, physical altercation with my mom in the kitchen, ran to my bedroom and uh so because I woke up so early, they were they were so they're like, You were slamming every single door. You were slamming every door and I was so ginger with these doors because I knew it was early and I knew that sound travels more because everything's quiet. And I would always turn them very softly and close the doors very softly, but they were like, no, you're slamming the doors. So they took all the doorknobs off my door, my bedroom door and the door to the bathroom that I used. So there was no way to close my door. Mm -hmm. So when I ran into my room, I had to hold it closed with my shoulder. and. Then I heard my my stepfather's voice. Like I remember him saying, "Oh, I'm fired up now," something like that. And then he pushed the door. He, of course, he's an older man, so he was stronger than me. Pushed the door open, and kind of slammed me against the wall with the door, Mm -hmm. and castigated me for talking to my mother the way I talked to her, or whatever. And then I climbed out of my bedroom window. We were on the first floor, and uh, went over to the payphone. <laughs> in the center of the apartment complex. I put a couple quarters in and I called my friend Tina, who was the girl I was in love with at the time, even though nothing ever ended up happening between us, and kind of told her what happened. I just needed to tell someone. And then I went back home and it was nighttime. I had left the light in my bedroom on. So when I walked up to the window I saw the light turn off. So I'm like, oh, they went into my bedroom. Then when I tried the window, the window was locked. Then I went over to the front of the apartment, the the door, and there was a trash bag. With all your shit. With all my clothes in it. So, and not all of them, they just took a bunch of clothes and threw them in the bag. And then I took that trash bag. No, you know what? It wasn't Tina. It was Daniil. I had a girlfriend at this time. Mm-hmm. Yes. I actually had a girlfriend at this time, so I went and told her what happened. I took the trash bag, and I went uh, upstairs to Jose 2's place, stayed the night, and I took the trash bag to school with me that day. And um, and all the joke. that's the other thing is like, you know, kids make jokes, but like I was never bothered by the jokes because I was always funnier than most of the kids. And so – and then also it was my my trump card is that you can't say anything that's gonna make me go but um but um it's like I that was not good I, that's what I would say to kids when they were playing the dozens and they would insult something like that's not good that would stop the I would stop the game yeah. that is not good and we'll be like oh like no 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 that is undue award. <laughs> reward to this guy who just said the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What are you talking about? So I remember going to the, the bus stop <laughs> with the trash bag. and was like, what's that? What are you moving? Or, I remember all the dumb jokes. and I would just stare at people like, nobody, you don't have anything. You know, um just all the hack jokes. Oh, your name's Baron von Baron von. what? Right? Basically that equivalent, but I had a trash, but about a trash bag. So I got in the bus and then uh went to school and the, this guy, Danny, who uh, now lives in Chicago? Who was I just saw him recently in Vegas. Um, he knew there was stuff going on at my place, my home. You know, I was never that forthright about it at school. I would talk about it a little bit, but also, I guess there was a part of me that was like, I, I don't want if I, I want attention, but I don't want attention from this.
1: Mm <laughs> hmm. If I'm going to get attention from people, it's going to be on my terms. That's what I've heard people say about comedians. They We control when people laugh at us. Exactly. And how they laugh at us.
2: That, and that's exactly how I felt about it is that if I was going to be – have attention on me and be popular or whatever, it was going to be on my terms. It wasn't going to be because I'm talking about like, oh, I didn't want to be a drama queen and just be like, oh, I'm my mom and uh, all these things, wah, right? That's how I saw it at least. So Danny was someone that I trusted. There was a couple, of course, there was a couple kids that I trusted and I told him what had gone on very matter-of-factly and he was like, we have an extra bedroom and I stayed, I lived with him for maybe two months.
1: And did you have contact with your your mom and your stepdad during that time? A little bit. Not a lot. Did they ask you to come home? No.
2: They, they, I think that they knew, or maybe my mom did. My my stepdad didn't really express any, I don't know how much uh, concern he did or didn't express. My mother was concerned. Was she still drinking at that point? Yes. And I, uh, I remember being at school And it had been a a date had been set for me to talk to my mom on the phone and i said i will i will call you after school on this day and uh i was in the school the school production of little shop of horrors because i'm amazing (laughs) and uh using the office phone at the theater to call my mom and i had this explosion that I was embarrassed about because it happened in front of a lot of the kids at school that I was talking to her on the phone when she answered, she was drunk. I was upset about this because I specifically told her when I was going to call. And I thought that she would have the decency to not be drunk. Right now, of course, later I'm like, it's a disease. It's a disease. She doesn't really have that much control. I mean, she has control of her, but she was probably afraid and scared and in pain, and what's the one thing that makes her feel better? You know, now I
1: know that now. Mm -hmm. Later I figured that out, but then I'm like, how dare she, you know, she should not, blah, right? In her mind, she she was probably also, and I know because I'm a recovered alcoholic, in your mind, you're going to have one or two, but the chemical process in an alcoholic is different because it creates the craving for more. Mm, Right, right. So
2: when I talked to her, she was drunk. I was upset. I yelled so much and I'm, i don't and every i just remember i was in this office and somehow i was suddenly wasn't in the office like it was too small for me to get i needed to walk around and i went out into the lobby and there was a lot of kids that were in the play that were there and i had this scene on the phone in front of them <laughs> and then i remember hanging up and like i don't remember what i said but everybody laughed I have no idea. I want to say it's just like uh, I hung out. I I hit it. I was like, and scene. Thank you very much, everybody. You can catch me next week. And I remember hanging up the phone and just, I, I I never, see, I'm not a big crier, which I regret. I wish I did because that stuff has to come out, right? It does. I'm more of a processor. I'll sit and I'll stew and I'll be like, okay, how do I feel? I feel this. I feel that. It's okay. Feel those things, but you still got shit to do, right? That's kind of where I've always been. So it didn't happen. And I I lived with my girlfriend for the majority of my senior year of, of high school. This was junior year that this fight happened. So I did go home. But then I decided. She must have had pretty liberal parents. She did. Actually, my two girlfriends in high school. Liked me so much, they had no problem with me sp- spending the night at their house, in their daughter's room, in their daughter's bed. That's how much parents trust me. They are so wrong. <laughs> no, but I think maybe they knew, knew I was going to be respectful. Like, I wasn't going to make their daughter do anything that she didn't want to do or that that they liked. The, the parents liked me. I don't know why. I still don't know why. They're just kind of like, oh, this kid is cool. He's funny. He can carry a you a likable guy. All right, Paul. I get it. I'm not funny. I did get that, it. Did that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> yeah, of course. What are you talking about? I'm horrible at compliments. Um. So yeah, I I lived with my 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 girlfriend for most of high school. Like I I stayed in her room and her mom drove us to school, and that was pretty much my senior year. And then I I I would go home sporadically to pick something up that I needed until I had kind of like just a little suitcase. So I lived out of a suitcase most of my senior year of high school. Until I went to college, and then I went, as, I went to Boston as far away as I could possibly get. And uh, having these awkward conversations with my mom, where she would call my dorm room, and I felt I needed to talk to her because I, I think that I, I missed her in, um, in my own way, even though I had decided I didn't love her. I, I remember saying out loud in high school, I don't love my mother. That is not a feeling that I am capable of. Love for my mother, right? And then going to college and feeling that I needed to let her talk to me. I knew it was important to her to talk to me, even as much as I didn't want to talk to her. And uh, it's awkward, just her talking like, mm-hmm, yeah. Until 15 minutes went by, I remember look. I would look at a clock until it was 15 minutes to feel like this was a long enough of a conversation for her. Hey, I gotta, I gotta go do some stuff, you know, and I would find some reason to get off the phone. And, um, honestly, a theater class is where I, my, my, my perspective of my mother flipped. It was, I want to say my sophomore year of college. One, this was this one exercise where we had to, two lines of students across from each other we had to envision the person we were looking at as our oppressor a time that we were oppressed i envisioned that fight with my mom over the camcorder and i looked at this girl it was a girl too as if she was my mother and we had to physically recreate our bodies in that moment how we felt physically when we were being oppressed Right. So I remember this cowering, this anger. I don't, it was like, it was all contorted and like ready to fight and afraid at the same time, which is how I felt. Then (laughs) she said, now become the body of the person that oppressed you. Now look at the person you're looking at as if they are you and become the body of your oppressor. And I remember standing up and trying to take my mom's body and remember her in that moment. And it was in that moment in that body That shit. (laughs) Oh, here it comes. It was in that moment, in that body, that I felt her fear and I felt her pain. And I said, Fuck, she's just a woman. She was a single mother with a son in a city she didn't know. She was afraid. And I have to give her some fucking credit, and that was at the beginning of when it changed for us because I felt I was her in that moment. I felt her fear and her pain and i I was like... I've been unfair is what I thought to myself that I do love her. she's my fucking mother, right? so I don't exactly know how it started, but it was like over the summer after my sophomore year of college where I think I went to I went back to Vegas or something, and I told her I wanted to take her to dinner, and she did show up drunk. And I let it go this time because, excuse me, I hit the microphone. I let it go this time because because this time I knew it wasn't about me, you know. And um, I almost want to say that I said something as simple as, I forgive you. And um, she was going through some shit because she started showing up to, drunk, uh, to work drunk. Then when she lost her job, but I, it's unclear to me because I was in Boston that she went to some center and detoxed and got sober. And I finally felt it was my mission to help her. And that that's why I say with like my grandmother, right, write her off. I'm like, I can't do that. And my stepfather, I thought, was enabling her. I can't do that. This woman just needs to be loved. I can do that. I can give her that. And I, I and I think that we we repaired a lot of stuff that summer of, of, our, of my between my sophomore and junior years of college, which um, is a, one year before I started doing stand up. Um, the end. <laughs> wow. Wow
1: I did it I'm so proud of myself Paul <laughs> dude I'm I'm speechless in, in so many ways it, you know the the first thing that strikes me is what an innately compassionate person you are and at that age to be able to put yourself in her shoes I mean I I'm awestruck as a 50-year-old who's been working on myself for 20 years at the place that you were able to get to at, at, in your – in college, in your sophomore year of college. I mean, that's – I'm just I'm, – I'm speechless. I'm speechless. It shouldn't be. That's bad uh that's bad for the podcast. Uh <laughs> Let me finish. I'm speechless at what a baby you are. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That's that's what it was. No, dude. Um you know, it's moments like that that, y- that you just shared that make me feel like this is the greatest job in the world. Well, I can't say that I was expecting this to happen, but it's like I do not
2: Tell this story often. Um, I can't even remember the last time I told it. Probably, you know what it was. It was in a relationship, you know, where I was me and this girl were obviously, you know, get very serious and like you know, uh, and we were just talking about a lot of stuff. And this this stuff came up one day, and it it very rarely does. I don't it rarely tell. I rarely tell this story. So and that there's a part of me also in like when it when it comes to stand up that I'm like i don't know if it's a fear of wanting to talk i want to talk about some of this stuff on stage but you know what i've gotten i've gotten aww oh, at shows just on like dark joke sometimes i'm like okay i can't yeah i yelled at a girl once because i'm like you can't do that um and so just like, but there's also a part of me, it's like me and my mother got through this, you know, like I said, she, I, she's probably the first person I run the jokes by now. Like when I'm like, and I call she her, been, is she, been, when did she get sober? Um, it was in February. I'm trying to remember the exact, it may have been, yes, 13 years. So shortly after that. Um, yeah, shortly before that or shortly after that, um, no, you're right. It was shortly after that because I was in school. I was still in school. It was the first semester of school, and February is the second semester.
1: Has she ever apologized to you about the stuff that she put you through? Yeah, when we we talked about it. What did that feel like? Um,
2: I felt at peace with it. Like, I know that it's from watching movies and watching TV because I feel like – I was saying this to – My girlfriend, the other night, we were watching some show, and I I made some joke about like, oh no, this person's going to be concerned about something petty, and then that person's going to be concerned about something petty, and it'll be hilarious. (laughs) That's how drama happens. Everyone just has petty concerns. And sometimes in those shows, you know, like when someone wants to apologize, the person who's getting the apology is petty about it. Like, it's not good enough, you should So I guess I had this consciousness that I see this scene, I've seen this scene in movies, and people just can't let the apology happen because they want to bring up all the stuff that they feel they should get an apology for. So, when my mother apologized, I I think I simply said, and this is a a credit to theater school and some teachers that taught me how to talk and taught me how to accept shit, you know. So, I I want to say I said something to the effect of, I know and I, and I, I accept your apology and I am sorry as well. And, I, you know, I accept your apology for everything and anything that could possibly apply to. I don't need to rehash everything. I don't need to to point at every single thing that you think you're sorry for. I know that you are sorry and I forgive you. Again. And I was in Boston for the summer. That summer where we hashed it out and there's nothing happening in Boston during the summer. It's a college town. Everyone's gone. I was spending a lot of time alone, but it was good time alone. And I almost want to say that me and my mom talked on the phone almost every single day, even if it was only for 10 minutes, that we talked, and we just kept, and we 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 got to know each other, like who we were right in those moments, who I was then and who she was then. We got to know each other, and that's the relationship we have now. So there's a part of me that feels like, since we've gone through this and we've processed it, and that I, I don't necessarily feel a need to to dwell on it, I'm reluctant to talk about it on stage. Because sometimes some people can talk about this stuff and they dwell on it. There's a way to talk about it where you're not just dwelling in it. I don't know that I have figured out how to do that yet, so I've kind of stayed away
1: from it. Mm. You know, my thought on that is that there is, I think I think forgiving that person is, is so important, but it's only a part of going back and and looking at that stuff because there's almost always some part of our soul that we didn't get all of that poison, whatever you want to call it, right out and hopefully, and I say this all the time on the podcast, hopefully we don't reexamine our childhoods to make our abusers or our caregivers suffer, we do it so we can process the feelings we've been running from our whole life so we can stop suffering. And I would I say that to you in the in the hopes that um you don't minimize what you could get out of going back and processing that, not only personally, but maybe even professionally. And as a performer, I think you can you can help other people by things you may glean from that even if it only moves your personal peace a quarter of an inch being an expressive articulate person like you are you could make light bulbs go on for somebody sitting and just watching you at a at a show that you don't even think much of that 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 could just be just another show to you um that's that's my that's my thought on that. I'm such a cheerleader for therapy and support groups, especially when I see somebody like you, who I think can carry the message of emotional recovery and, um, yeah. So that's that that that's my my thought on. Well, my mother is is, you know,
2: um, her group is great. Um, the people are great and they're very strong together and tight knit. And, um, so, like, you know, she's, she, they're just fantastic for her, you know, and, and I've met them a, a couple different times, you know, people's barbecues and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it's, and it's good stuff. So it's like, um, uh, I've personally considered some groups myself. Um I and you know the thing about therapy <laughs> that I that I come back to um is when where will I find the time slash the money for it uh especially right now and I know that there are places I can go that aren't that expensive
1: or sliding scale yeah,
2: yeah. and I'm figuring out I'll figure maybe I'll figure that out I mean I'm still struggling with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, still trying to figure out where I can get, what what I can get out of it, when I can get something out of it.
1: You know, there's this weird thing in the universe that I've discovered um, where if we're open to something and we kind of say, you know, I'm going to do that healing thing if an opportunity presents itself, the universe has this weird way of Meeting us halfway and opportunities presenting themselves. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if you kind of give in to that idea that, that something doesn't roll your way um, to to make it easier. Um, makes me a little uncomfortable to say that because I'm afraid people are going to be going, oh, put your new agey <laughs> spirituality in the fucking box where it deserves. But that's my truth and yeah. I, I'm not gonna apologize for, for speaking it. Well I'm sorry that's your truth. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I wanna thank you so much for um sharing your life. Um it's been really great hearing it and, and seeing you just open up your rib cage and
2: <laughs> I'm surprised. I I, I am surprised. This is very intimidating.
1: <laughs> I, I suppose I, I it is because, like, when I did Marin's podcast and talked about stuff, I second-guessed myself. I secretly hoped that he wouldn't air it because I thought I came across as just a blubbering mess. And I didn't even cry on it, but I just talked about all my pain, and I just felt so exposed and... Um,
2: well, I don't even realize. Like, I'm starting to get emails from listeners from my podcast, and I, I, I don't even realize how exposed I am, how much I've been sharing, and even friends of mine who are like, "Man, I heard last week's podcast. I can't believe that stuff." I'm like, "What? How did you? Oh, yeah. I, I guess I'm just talk. I'm just talking and
1: saying everything, and I'm not You're even sh- thinking about it. Your story is so much deeper than you think it is. It is, and and the abandonment that you experienced. I think is so much deeper than you think it is. But I think that's how we dealt with it was we had to deny that it was that big of a deal. And kids are pretty resilient too, but it leaves, it leaves, um, some, un, some parts of us that are, that are unhealed, um, that goes beyond just forgiving that, that, that other person that, um, so, well, they've been coming up recently,
2: I think, you know, it, uh, I think that, kind of as you said a little bit, certain things are starting to, as a teacher of mine used to say, demand attention, mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, so there's a the alchemist, it's the alchemist yeah.
1: <laughs> well baron thank you, thank you so much for uh coming and doing this and people can check out your podcast it's called deep shit and is and they can check out your website uh b-a-r-o-n-v-a-u-g-h-n uh dot com and uh, i imagine anything that they want to find out about you they can find out through through, through that, the website th- that website yep and your twitter handle is bar von black and a b-a-r-v-o-n-b-l-a-q yeah something i thought was clever but it's always confusing <laughs> uh, thank you so much thank you uh as i said many thanks to uh, to baron i really enjoyed that uh, that conversation and getting to uh, know a little bit about his his life uh, before we take it out with uh stack o surveys i think we're definitely going to be pushing the two uh two hour mark on on this episode um Want to remind you, there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. Um, you can go to the website mentalpod.com and make either a one-time PayPal donation, or my absolute favorite, a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. Once you set it up, um, you it just uh, automatically gives me uh, five to you know fifty dollars a month, depending on how much you want to contribute. I think you can do fifty, um, and it uh, you don't have to do anything to it um, unless your credit card expires or you want to cancel. Um, so please go do that. You can also support the show by um, when you sh- shop at Amazon, do it through the search portal on our homepage. It's on the right hand side, about halfway down. Um, you can also support us by uh, non financially by spreading the word through social media um, or going to iTunes and uh, writing a nice review and uh, giving us a good rating. It boosts our ranking brings more people to the show. Uh, I think that is about it. Um, Let's get to the surveys. And uh, actually, I've got a couple emails I want to kick it off with first. Um, This one is from Sandy, and she says... Uh, let me start by saying thank you for making this podcast. I found it sometime in the last couple months and have been listening to episodes randomly out of sequence. I was listening to episode uh, 14 with Wendy Liebman and was disturbed to hear you ask her point blank for her height and weight when discussing her eating disorder. Perhaps other people have already emailed you about this, but I paused my listening to let you know that, quote, numbers, questions are not healthy for the eating disordered. Um, one of the many issues is that the implications of your question was, how sick were you, which tends to lead to disordered thinking for the interviewee and some listeners. Um, thank you for this podcast and your appreciation of feedback. Thank you for uh, for sharing that, Sandy. I, um, as I said, I'm not a mental health professional, and feedback is always appreciated. Uh, this is an email from uh, a guy named Ryan and he writes you mentioned uh, in one of the last episodes you might not read the sexual parts of surveys i feel it would be a loss to miss out on the sexual part it is core to almost every living person it is also one of the most haunting societal oppression tools you diffuse that crushing societal judgment by reading out the rainbow of internal of internal human sexual experience thank you for that ryan um this is just an excerpt from a uh email i got from a listener named steve and he writes after repeatedly listening to people who when asked whether or not they've been sexually abused respond with some stuff happened but i'm not sure i had the thought boy i'm lucky i never went through any of that followed a second later by the thought what the fuck am i talking about that's exactly what happened to me um it's crazy how our brains will bury shit this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy named Garrett. He's uh, between 16 and 19. And um, about racial and cultural bias, he writes, I have shame that racism has made me want to be white more than anything in the world. This is from same survey, a woman uh, who calls herself Skinner. I'm holding my Bic lighter up right now. Uh, She's in her 30s about her depression. She writes, when I'm low, I call myself such, such horrible names that if someone else were to call me them, I would beat them beyond recognition. About her codependency, she writes, I beat other people down and call them out all the time because I'm too much of a pussy to be strong, so I fake it. Uh, about being a sex crime victim. She writes, I'm pissed that this piece of shit robbed me and my boyfriend of having a healthy sex life. I could always fuck after I was raped, but I can't make love anymore. I miss it. That breaks my heart. And a big hug to you, Skinnerd. I can't imagine how hard that's uh, that's got to be to heal from. Um, This is also from the uh, same sentence filled out by a woman Uh, Calls herself Mouse. She's in her 20s. About her depression, she writes, the whole world outside my bed is scary, hard, complicated. Uh, It's a haze that will never clear. (laughs) Oh, my God, do I relate to that. Um, About her anxiety, she writes, it's like I'm driving a speeding car. No matter how hard I stretch, my foot can't reach the brakes. The crash is imminent, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Um, about her panic attacks, she writes, like I'm holding on to sanity by my fingertips, and if I let go, I will tumble head over heels into the abyss. Um, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself her. She's in her 30s. About her love addiction, she writes, a fantasy or a way to take me back something. Uh, about her sex addiction, she writes, somehow that's how I learned to take my power back. And about racial and cultural bias, she writes, black men are aggressive and dirty, white men are dirty and weak, Uh, and women are red lips with jagged teeth, so who is left? This is a happy moments uh, survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Molly. Uh, And she writes, this happy moment occurred recently. I have depression and anxiety, and I rarely experience true joy. I was leaving the grocery store and walking through the half-empty parking lot. The sun was just beginning to go down and the sky was an amazing pinkish-gray color. The temperature was perfect with a slight breeze and I just stopped in the middle of the parking lot and stared up at the sky. Generally, I'm extremely self-conscious and anxious, but at that moment, I didn't care what anyone thought of me. I stood there for about a minute just staring at the sky and it felt like I was smiling at the universe and it was smiling right back at me. I love moments like that. Uh, This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way uh, survey, and this was filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Plank, and uh, he's in his 30s. And uh, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Uh, He was a great guy. How does writing that make you feel? Assured. Uh, If you had a time machine, how would you use it? The usual grassy knoll video camera. Um, I'm supposed to feel safe around my friends, but I don't. I feel I still need to prove myself. Um, I really related to that one. Um, How does it make you feel to write your feelings out? Uh, Distantly uncomfortable. You think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes. I couldn't disagree more. Um, Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yes. Well, rest assured, Plank, you are so normal in feeling and thinking those things. Um. same survey uh, shouldn't feel this way survey um, this was filled out by a, a woman who calls herself uh, Kelly and she is um, in her 30s uh, identifies as asexual uh, what would you like people to say about your, your at your funeral uh, I don't think I would like to have one yet at the same time I fantasize about dying and seeing people finally seeing that I couldn't do it I couldn't make it and some sick part of me wants people to feel bad, to cry, to maybe toss a black rose on my coffin. Uh, I honestly don't think I would even receive a funeral. How do I explain that? Um, I know it sounds like I probably am going overboard and telling people how I relate to their feelings, but um, that feeling of wanting to pe- wanting people to cry at my funeral, yes. I totally get that. I want them to be happy, and I want them to cry. I want them to experience every emotion in the universe at my uh, at my funeral. Um, I want them to even experience ennui. I want them to just stare absentmindedly through the window and think what might have been. Um, the only thing I don't agree with you uh, or feel the same way is the black rose on the coffin. That That, to me, sounds like it's out of a... A, a bad movie or something. Um, not to criticize your fu- your, funeral, your funeral fantasy. Uh, how does writing that make you feel like I always do? That I'm alone with this pain and knowing I have the other half of my life ahead of me and not wanting to experience this pain anymore. It won't stop in my head. It's like a montage of horror movies made up of my past cycling through my head. It won't stop and I search for things to make me numb. Again, I so relate to that wanting something to numb the pain when it comes up. Um, If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would like to see what my grandfather did to my mom. She was sexually, physically, and emotionally abused. Um, It would hurt, but I would understand my mom. Um, I would understand. My mom has never hurt me, but seems like it's a vicious cycle with the women in my family. We seem to be victims. I'm supposed to feel grateful for having a caring husband and having time off from work to work on my PTSD, but I don't. I feel guilty and helpless. I'm supposed to feel angry and uh, at the people that hurt me throughout my life, but I don't. I just want them to go away. I just want peace. How does writing that make you feel? It makes me feel like I have so much more to say, but the words are jumbled. I wish there was a way to record my thoughts. I just can't get them out. I highly recommend it if you're not in therapy already. It sounds like you might be. Um, That and journaling would be a great way to get your your thoughts out. And uh, um, my old chestnut support groups, there was nothing like hearing other people struggle to get their words out to let you know it's okay for it to come out imperfectly. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes. I don't understand why after all these years at age 35, all the repressed memories of abuse are attacking me now. Why? I don't understand. Um, Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? Oh, God, yes. Well, Kelly, I'm 50, and shit just came roaring back to me at 49 years old, and I'm just processing it now. So you got 15 years. Clock's ticking. It's a process. It is a process. Be patient with yourself. It comes out, it has its own timetable, and um, it's one of the biggest wastes of time is wishing that our processing of pain was different. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Raquel. She's straight, she's in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts, uh, because of what happened at my previous job. On one hand, I feel like a liar and a fraud. On the other hand, I feel pathetic that I let the opinion of one person, my ex-boss, have so much control over me. I feel like I shouldn't be so hard on myself for lying about why I had to leave my job early. But at the same time, I feel bad about myself for deceiving people for months just so I could make some money. I wish I could get over this and stop obsessing around something I have no control over anymore. Deepest, darkest secrets. I lied to my boss and co-workers about why I had to suddenly quit my previous job. At the time, I was living abroad and working at an English academy. I told the owner of the school that my fiancé had been accepted to a grad school program, which is why I had to quit teaching at the school before classes ended in June. What really happened, though, is that we had planned to have our wedding in Chicago in April, and I had known since September that I wouldn't be finishing the school year. I waited until the last minute to to tell my boss so that she would hire me on again in September and give me as many classes as possible. When I finally told her I was leaving, she took it very personally and put a lot of guilt on me, so much so that I'm still obsessing about it months later. I wanted to read this, Raquel, because I think this might have been the least dark shame and secret survey I've ever read. So I'll be mailing a trophy to you shortly, and uh, with it, the envy of the rest of us that... um, our shame and our secrets could be so mild. So for the love of God, forgive yourself. That is such a... Um, I know our feelings are our feelings, um, but my God, I think we all long for something like that to be our our deepest, darkest shame and, and secrets. Um, her se- uh, strongest pe- sexual fantasies, feeling desired by older men. Um would you ever consider telling a partner, or close friend? Yes, my husband is both older and turned on by me. Um, you know what, Raquel? Fuck you, fuck you for having such a good, <laughs> a good, healthy life, and rub it in our face. Of course, I'm kidding. Uh, I I like to to read um, stuff that across the the spectrum. Um, this is a Shame and secret survey filled out by a guy. Um, calls himself Charlie, he's 20, he's straight, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, I've ever been the victim of sexual abuse, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse, up until a few weeks ago, I never thought I'd been sexually abused, however, I've been becoming more physically intimate, Um, as I have been becoming more physically intimate, I'm starting to suspect that I was molested as a child and have repressed the memory. Uh, Whenever I get close to someone and they touch me in certain places on my body, I begin having flashes of feelings and images of being molested by someone when I was a young child. I'm still trying to figure out what this means and when this happened and who did it to me. Um, What are the deepest? And by the way, I highly recommend getting into therapy and just starting to talk about it instead of waiting to have clarity on it so that you can go talk about it it almost in my opinion always happens the other way around as we begin talking about it stuff begins coming coming back um and sometimes it doesn't and that doesn't matter it's the feelings that are important to to process deepest darkest thoughts many of my sexual fantasies involve me changing my gender and by extension life becoming infinitely better. I'm not transgender or anything. In fact, I'm pretty secure and comfortable with being a guy. I'm just really confused where this comes from and how it affects my behavior when I meet certain women. Graphic sexual scenarios play out in my head whenever I meet a woman. Uh, As a result, I don't know where any of this comes from, uh, but I am making the effort to put it to an end. I don't objectify women. In fact, I'm basically a feminist in my own right. I'm just having trouble reconciling these thoughts and how I really feel, man. You know, my thought is just give into it. We're all unique. We're all across the spectrum of of sexuality, and it's such a waste of time wishing that we were we that we had different sexual fantasies it's like wishing that we had um you know longer arms it just it's it's not gonna it's not changing it is is not gonna happen so we might as well just find a way to to live with it and you know it it doesn't sound like something to me that anybody should be embarrassed about um deepest, darkest secrets. I'm seriously starting to suspect that I was molested as a child and repressed the memory. I haven't told anyone this. I'm afraid of telling my family because they have been very passive when it comes to issues. Um, I've had all my life. I have Asperger's and am bipolar. I'm also uh, unsure slash hesitant of bringing it up to friends. Um, I know I will need to tell someone soon because the knowledge that this happened to me is slowly tearing me apart from the inside. I've been lashing out at people more and more. I've been disconnecting from my social life and I've just become much more withdrawn from people as a result of this discovery. I haven't given up hope and I know that with help, I can get back on track. I'm just trying to figure out the first steps right now. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Most fantasies I have come back to me changing my sex. The idea of me changing my gender is the backbone of pretty much every sexual fantasy I have. They all follow the same pattern. My sex has changed for some reason, and as a result, my sex life slash social life and overall quality of life is improved. I don't know why this is the case. I'm fairly confident in saying that I'm a straight guy. I don't want that to sound like I'm coming off as any kind of homophobe or bigot because I'm not. I'm just really perplexed why this seems to be the only fantasy that I have and nothing else ever seems to draw a response from me. I'm starting to wonder if there's any connection between this and my most likely molestation as a child. Um, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I don't think so, mainly because I'm afraid of how they would respond if I told them. Frankly, I'm just as weirded out by this as they probably would be if I told them. Um, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings toward your yourself. Mainly confusion more than anything else. I'm just really confused where this is coming from and what it really means. I know that I'm not transgender, but this only leads to further confusion about why the pl- fantasies play out. I hope you can get to a place where, where you're at, at peace with that. This is also from, um, oh, this one is a little too long. Um, to read because the, the show's running a little bit long, but it was filled out by um, uh, a girl named Jackie who I think she's 17, um, and she's just really struggling, and she has um, attempted suicide in the past and is really having trouble finding someone to connect to that is emotionally capable of having conversations with her that she needs to have. She had a bad experience or at least an unfulfilling, I don't know what the word would be, experience with calling a suicide hotline. And I just want to urge you, keep reaching out to people who are appropriate and have the emotional capacity to handle something this heavy. Um, Most people um, aren't equipped, I think, to be able to handle somebody um, saying, I've Attempted suicide, and I'm in this terrible place. But a mental health professional um, should be equipped to do just that. And just know that you're not alone, Jackie. I'm sending you a big hug. This is from uh, the Happy Moment survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Jasper. And this one just kind of made me chuckle. He writes, "Uh, I I played in an awful punk band in high school. We had a gig with this shitty metal band uh, at an event. Hall, we rented out. It was a straight-edge show because we were a straight-edge punk band. In in parentheses, he writes, cringe. During our set, we played a song, and our singer yelled out, during Jasper's bass solo, break something. The audience did. I felt great about that. I wish I would have been there. That would have been fun. This is also from the um, Happy Moments survey. And um, this was filled out by a guy named Dan, who is in his 20s. And he writes, This starts off depressing, but bear with me. After getting bullied so much that I failed everything in high school, I dropped out and went to college. It was a really shit college that anyone could get into, and it was a course that literally anyone could pass. For seven years, people would verbally abuse me and tell me that I was destined to fail. I went into a major depression and dropped out of college. I then found this podcast. For ages, it was the only thing I lived for. No word of it, a lie. If I ever found this podcast, if I had never found this podcast, who knows where I would be right now. Anyway, once I found this podcast, I decided to seek medical help. Then, long story short, I woke up one day, said, fuck this shit, and applied to a better college. Passed the interview, got accepted, and two years later, passed my course. I am now heading to university, something everyone laughed at uh, the idea of, and I am the first person in my family to do so. The happy moment I am talking about is today the proudest moment of my life. Well, if this podcast played even a tiny bit in in that Dan um, that makes me feel really good, but remember you you are the one that that did the work um, and I thank the people that inspired me to go inside myself and walk towards the pain. Um, And without them, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. So just thank that long chain of people that God knows when it started that um, have been sharing their pain with other people so that they can feel less alone. Um, And this final one is from, again, the Happy Moment survey filled out by a woman named Kendra, and she writes, I remember sitting in the middle of my mom's garden and watching the bees zip around. We moved so often that I never really felt like I had a home, but my mom always managed to have a garden. Sitting in the sunlight, on the earth, and watching the bees gave me a feeling of roots and peace that I didn't experience elsewhere. I love these moments where people are just totally present and just seeing what's around them and just soaking it in. You know, I guess that that's what people call mindfulness and um I think a lot of us who have been through traumatic or unpleasant episodes in our lives, we learn to go into our head for fantasy, and um, there's just nothing like being present. So I hope we've said something today that helps you, and just remember you're not alone, and thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked I is weird bizarrely fucked up in some weird way.